Mark 5, there's this wonderful piece of scripture connecting to our fearless theme that we've been focusing on, those moments where Jesus said, don't be afraid. Here's one of them that we're coming into. It says, now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, that there was a great multitude that had gathered to him. He, he was by the sea. That's the sea that we've been you know, conversing about a lot in the Bible, the Sea of Galilee. It's really a lake, the Lake of Gennesaret. It's where a lot of Jesus' ministry in the Galilee took place. And he went to the other side. And when he got to the other side, there was this uh, large group of people. The Bible says a multitude of people were gathered there to hear him teach. And so Jesus began to, to teach them and, and interact with them. And it's quite possible that when he was in the middle, it, it's not explicitly stated, but it's quite possible that as he was in the middle of teaching is when what we're about to read transpired. Clearly, it was an interruption. It was something that would have caught a lot of people off guard because of the person who was actually interrupting Jesus. He wasn't just anybody. We're actually given his name. His name was Jairus. Jairus was, as we see here, one of the rulers of the synagogue, which meant he was a recognized leader. And as such, um, he would have been a person of prominence and highly respected. He would have had some you know, significant probably pedigree as well. The point being is the people that were gathered around Jesus would have known who he was, and yet they were probably startled, at least caught off a little bit guard by the uh, unusual display of desperate humility that they would not have normally expected from a man like this, who was more likely to have been someone who confronted Jesus than actually did what he was about to do. Because we're told that in the middle of Jesus' interactions with the multitude of people who were gathered there, that this man literally made his way through the crowd. And in our mind's eye, we can see him pushing his way through. And when he gets to Jesus, perhaps Jesus is in mid-sentence, we don't know for certain, but he gets to him. And he literally, it says here, he threw, he fell at his feet. And that would have instantaneously caught everybody's attention. And not just that, though. Not only did he fall at the feet of Jesus, what are we told that he began to beg him earnestly? So the picture we have is of this man at the feet of Jesus, begging Jesus earnestly. And he's like saying, I just need you to do something. I need you to do something. Jesus, at this point, had a reputation as someone who could heal. And this man, Jairus, is absolutely desperate. He says, I just need you so badly. Would you come with me? He says, would you come with me to my, my home? My daughter is dying. She's on the verge of dying. And I know, I know that if you, if you will come and if you will touch her and pray for her, I believe she could be healed. Will you come with me? That's the picture that we have here. And he's waiting. He's probably so desperate, but at the same time, he has to be respectful. So he's humbled himself. He's begging. He's earnestly asking. What is he asking Jesus to do? To interrupt his plans and to make a detour and go to his home. I just need you to come with me. I know if you will, she can be healed. That's the picture we're given. And you know what Jesus says? All right, I'll do it. And all the people are around Jesus, and, and we're told here that after he begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death, would you just come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed? And then I know she will live. That Jesus, look what it says in verse 24, that Jesus went with him, but he didn't just go alone. What we're told is that there was a great multitude of people who were following him. In fact, the word that is used there, look at it, it's not a word that we commonly use anymore. It's the word thronged him. So the picture we're given by the Bible is that when Jesus says, I'll do it, 
I'll go, you show me the way. Jairus says, come on, it's, it's this way. He starts to lead Jesus, and, is, and Jesus is surrounded by a large mass of people. His disciples are with him. Everybody's kind of moving together. There's an excitement, a curiosity. Where are you going? We're going to Jairus' house. He's asked Jesus to come, and they're all moving. The Bible's the picture we're given is people are just really crowding in around Jesus, and they're moving together in mass. And in the middle of this this, you know, movement of people making their way to the house of Jairus, that what we're told is something else happens to disrupt what had been. Remember now, what's going to happen here is a, a detour to a detour, right? Because Jesus has already been sort of taken, asked to go and make a change in his plans. As he's making his change in plans and going with Jairus, there's another thing that happens in the middle of him on his way there that pulls him off course, and here's what it is. We're told that there was a certain woman who, um, well, this woman was a woman that we often call the woman with the issue of blood. She, she had been sick with this blood disease for about 12 years, we're told. And um, like so many people who cross the path of Jesus in the Gospels, we don't know her name. So over time, she sort of acquired the designation of the woman, as the woman with the issue of blood, the woman with the blood disease. And this woman who, who was absolutely herself a desperate picture because for 12 years she had been sick and battled this disease. And anybody who's ever battled disease for any amount of time knows how discouraging it can be if you're not getting better. If we have someone we love, for example, and they're struggling with a disease, it can really hit us. And this woman is a picture of, of someone who had struggled for many, many years with her health. And it didn't appear that she was getting any better even after 12 years. And that brings us to this 26th verse. It says that she had suffered. This is a very curious phrase. I don't know if you noticed it. And we, we need to appreciate it because it's, it's kind of unusual. What does it say? That this woman had, in verse 26, suffered many things from many physicians. Well, you don't go to physicians to suffer. You go to alleviate suffering. What is that? You got to remember that. You know, in their day, medicine could at times be cr very crude and almost, from our perspective, barbaric. I mean, even if you think about it, we live in a day when we have certain expectations about medicine, modern medicine, um, the effect of, of going to a physician. Uh, we go to doctors. There are reasons why we do that. We have certain expectations. But even as just, you know, just 200 years ago from now, there were things going on that from our perspective now would be considered ludicrous, crazy, almost barbaric. Now jump that back 2,000 years, and you've got things that were going on in the name of healing and health and practice of medicine that sometimes by the time that they were done with the patient made them far worse than when they came in. And in her case, could almost be described as suffering at a number of levels, not only physically, but a number of indignities as well. So some of the prescribed cures ended up being worse making her even worse. For 12 years, she had suffered like this. We're also told something else here, that um, be beyond the fact that she, she had, you know, for 12 years been sick, we realized also that we're told that she had spent uh, everything that she had on trying to find someone who could help her with this disease, this blood flow. It was either internal, it's quite possible it had an external expression to it, it was a serious issue for someone, even in her culture, for a number of other reasons as well, which I'll mention in a moment. The fact of the matter is, she has spent all of her money. So th get the picture now. She is a person who is physically getting weaker and weaker. She's got this disease. It's not getting any better. She's spent all of her money seeking a cure. Nothing has worked. And 
Her strength is, is not much left for her, her situation. No money, nobody to help her, it appears, and uh, failing health. I mean, honestly, her situation looked hopeless, and it looked absolutely bleak. And it was, and, oh, and on top of that, there was one other thing. If that were not enough, physically depleted, uh, no more money, impoverished, on top of it, we know that someone in her condition, just kind of because of the, I don't know, the reality of the day from a hygienic and social law, the custom of the day, and I know it's a little bit harder for us to appreciate, but they based it around a teaching in Leviticus 15. It would have meant that anybody with a blood disease was considered to be someone who needed to be segregated from the rest of the community. So what would have happened in her case is, you know, she would have, she would have on top of her physical suffering and her, you know, her loss of resource would have had to carry a stigma as well. So she was now living as an outsider, an unclean person, someone who was on the periphery now of the community, no longer let in. So all these things are going on here. And it was a desperate place, helpless, almost hopeless, weak, emaciated. She, she made a decision. Her decision is going to change her life. And it's an amazing moment. Look what it says here, verse 27. It says that when she heard about Jesus, she, she came behind him in the crowd and, and touched his garment because she had reasoned in her mind that if I may only, look at her reasoning. She said, if I may only touch his clothes, I know I shall be made well. If I only can touch his clothes, I know I shall be made well. The, um, the reasoning she had was somehow, maybe there's a tinge of superstition here, but in her mind, she believed that the one who was said to have healing power could heal her if only she could somehow touch him. Even just grabbing his clothes would be enough to heal her. That's what she believed. It was fascinating because think about the, the difference between Jairus, who's also desperate, and this woman who's desperate. Think about it. He's thinking, what does he, think about how he, what does he ask Jesus to do? What is he thinking? He says, look, if you will just come with me to my house and, and my daughter who's dying, and, and if you can just touch her, if, if you can be present and touch her, then I believe she can be healed. This woman is thinking, if I can just touch him, I, I know I can be healed. Both of them have to do with things touching. One, the touch of Jesus. The other one, if I can just touch Jesus. Both of them are thinking somewhat differently, but both believe that Jesus can heal. So what does she do? She rallies herself. Notice here, to find a way to get to Jesus. And it was desperate, it was bold, it was brave. In my mind, given her condition, it was almost heroic. Because Jesus at this time, remember, he was being what? Swarmed by people. The word throng there is the idea that he's being just, you know, jostled about on the way. They're all working, moving together. The disciples are there, others are there. People are, it's a very, it's a very powerful thing to be stuck in a movement of a crowd. I don't know if you've ever, we've ever experienced it. I would assume many of us have. You go to certain events, it might be an athletic event, a concert, uh, I can recall a couple of times or even where when something is opened up and everybody starts rushing towards it, it's almost like a push of a people, a mass of people. And you can't, you, you know, there's times where you can understand how people get trampled. You read about it in the news, you hear about it at certain events, in, sometimes in third world countries, but sometimes in, depart in department stores uh, the day after Christmas. When the doors fly open, people run, and I've seen, seen it where they get trampled down. I thought, oh, you know, I think, how can people do that? And I, until I remember what happened to me in 2010 when I was at the Giants parade. 
And I remember I was so curious. I wanted to see like so many people did. You know, I was waiting for the, the, the group to go by. And all of a sudden, I was in the middle of the crowd. And then when, when people said, they're coming, there was like this massive movement of people all making their way to the barriers that were there because they all wanted to see the, the procession. And I remember getting caught up in that. You couldn't turn around even if you wanted to. In fact, I ended up, and it was, a path, it was actually quite a pathetic sight, but I, I climbed up on a pole. <laughs> and yeah, it was amazing. And I was just, I ended up getting stuck there for about an hour, right, on a fence pole. <laughs> Because I couldn't get down. It was so many people. It was so much. I, and I really, and I, so I find myself thinking back, wow, yeah, it can be almost a little unsettling to get stuck in a mass of people. You can't turn around. It's really hard. Well, here is she's weak. There is a huge amount of people around Jesus. And she evidently musters everything, everything in her. I mean, she's got everything going against her, but she is determined. And she's going to somehow, some way, I'm going to touch him. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And again, when I was a boy in Sunday school class, they would say, you know, it was the the hem of his garment was flowing. And and the picture of her was like on the ground, just kind of like reaching out while people were all around her, just grabbing a hold of that. And whether it was that or, or she was just doing as fast as she could to desperately just grab a hold, but she got him. And when she got him, the Bible is explicit in this. It says that it's the moment she grabbed him, the moment she got him, it was that a surge of life, the Bible says, look at it, it says immediately, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, verse 29, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. So she grabs a hole, and then as soon as it's like, like she feels it in her body that, that, that there's something that's happening on the inside of her body, like accelerated surgery, right? Well, however it is, electricity, shot of life, whatever that fountain of blood was, found a surge of life in the opposite direction. She touches Jesus, and the life flows into her body, and she can feel it. She can feel strength returning into her. And for all we know, she's just still on the ground, and the crowd by this point has passed her by. Or maybe she's just kind of slipping back into the crowd. All of a sudden, though, and again, what's the picture? There's a group of people moving. Jairus is saying, come on, it's this way. Come this way. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, Stop! Stop it. Who touched me? (laughs) And we're told that the disciples, and in fact, if you read Luke's gospel, it says it was Peter who led the charge here and goes, what are you talking about, Lord? Everybody's touching you. What do you mean? Why would you say that? Why are you saying who touched me? Look at it. You can see for yourself. It says, why do you, what the disciples said to him, Lord, the multitudes, people are everywhere all around you, touching you in every way. What are you saying? Who touched me? He goes, you don't know, Jesus says, you don't understand. Who touched me? He says that he, he had felt power. Look at that, verse 30. He felt power. The older version says, virtue flow out of him. That's a Fascinating statement. A lot of theologians don't know what to do with that statement because it's interesting. The minute she touched him, she had power. Life force surged into her, and Jesus felt something go from him. And he says, no, I'm telling you, so who touched me? And you see that Jesus, the, impression, the picture is he's looking around, and he says, you. You. That's the picture. Who are you? Woman, 
whatever he says. <laughs> now everybody's quiet at this moment. What we're told here is so after he looked around to see who had done this thing, now, now we see the connection to the theme. Because the Bible tells us she doesn't just come fearfully. But the Bible says, this says she's fearfully and it says trembling. She's coming to him fearfully and trembling. Why is she so afraid? And she throws herself down. And she's trembling. And you know, why? why? Why is she afraid? Well, at least in part because she stole something. <laughs> she stole that blessing. Not, and not just that. But she also knew the way that it worked. A person like her was unclean. Yet he was not just a man. He was a rabbi. She, he, she had defiled him. This was a problem in their day. You don't do that. So you got two things happening. One, a, a stolen blessing without permission. And she's going, I'm, uh, uh, and you could say the picture is, um, uh, she, she's trembling, she's afraid. And what comes, here's the thing. She doesn't know what's coming next. As far as she knows, it could be, who gives you the right to do that? But what comes to her is one of the most marvelous words of Jesus delivered. It's so beautiful. It's so touching because this person who had lived as an outsider on the periphery is now given a unique statement by Jesus, a word of blessing. For he says to her, look at me. And he says to her, this word would have meant so much to her. He didn't use it a lot. This trembling woman in front of him, he says to her, daughter, daughter, your faith, not in these clothes, but in me, your faith has made you whole. I want you to know something. This blessing, I give it to you. I want you to go in peace, go in the wholeness of God. It's a beautiful moment. And, and if you look at it, and you, the tenderness of the word that is being said there, your faith has made you whole. It's like, it was like, it was like for everyone, everyone, everyone was probably was just amazingly touched by the moment. It was powerful, it was stunning. And everybody was probably going, oh, that's so awesome. Except, except for one person. Because there was one person who was going, can we hurry? Because I, as good as this is, I got a daughter who's dying. And we're going to talk about that person next week. <laughs> yes, we are. Because he was the one man in the crowd who was not happy about what was happening. Because he needed to go. So what, do we, what can we draw from this in the minutes that we have? This is my own personal take, okay? I'm going to just throw this out there, and then we can sit with it and mull it over and consider it. Let me suggest this, and I love this. That there is a different... There, there is a difference, and there are different ways of touching Jesus. And I'm speaking metaphorically right now. Because, by the way, um, sometimes desperation is a gift. Do we understand that? Because in this, in this account, desperation is everywhere. We've got a desperate father who's going, I don't care my status and my position. I don't care how great I am. I need your help. Desperate. And then we've got a woman who's got nothing. I'm in okay. I, I, might, I might get trampled, but I'm taking a chance. Desperate. Desperate, desperate everywhere. Desperation is everywhere. And, the, and, and willingness to be undignified in that desperation. And there are times where there is a, some healing from God that only comes in the path of, of desperate humility. 
And that's why sometimes in our lives, when we feel like we're in a place where things are awful, they may actually be the entranceway to God doing a miracle thing in our life because our heart is open and raw and willing to engage him in ways that we would have never engaged him or would have been reluctant to do so. Maybe other people, we fear their perspective. You're getting that Jesus thing. And that, but, but you know what? When your heart is ready, you're ready. And what happens is he doesn't disappoint. In fact, one of the things we realize, and this is the second piece here, is that he notices even one in a crowd. Nothing is missed. He can distinguish the touch. I love that. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're heading, we're heading towards the celebration of the cross and the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Christ. Do you know what? This is an intensely personal gospel. Yes, God so loved the world, no question about it, that he gave his only begotten son. He loves the world, the billions of people. He loves them. God gives himself away. But you know what else? He loves us uniquely, uniquely in the midst of the billions. He knows you and he knows me. And he knows us by name. And he knows our unique struggles. He is willing to address our unique issues. where We need healing, life, breakthrough. He knows our aspirations. He knows where we're at. He, what is he? He knows us in the crowd. I know you. I see you. I call you. And here's the deal. The beautiful thing about it, we don't have to be afraid of him. Three, we don't have to be afraid of God. What does this tell us? We don't have to be, some people... They're afraid of God. And I say, you know what? I get it. You know, sometimes because of the fa Father, I get that. I go, but you know what Jesus said? Look at me. Look at me. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? Jesus says, look at me. Um, look at me. He says, you see, the you see God's face in me. You want to know how he is? Look at me. He gives everything. And you know what else he does? This is very meaningful to me. He invites us into his family. Last thing here. You know, he could have said so many things, but what does he say? He says, you are my daughter. I, uh, in my mind, that moment is like, I, I see it when Jesus says you, this, to this shaking woman, he says, you're my daughter. Da now, as far as I know, she was most likely older than him. But he says, your daughter, you're my daughter. Daughter, daughter. Nice, the prodigal son, when the father hugs the prodigal and says, you're my son. I love you. My son who was lost is found. I see the same thing. Don't you be afraid of me. You're my daughter. That, and by the way, that word meant even more to her. Because why? She had been pushed outside. Jesus says, I'm bringing you in. And what, what did that word say? It says, you are part of my family. And... And I have an identity that I give you. And some of us used to hear, he calls us sons and he calls us daughters. He, he says, I welcome you in. It was almost like, I don't know how to describe it. It was like the, the, the word was, for her to hear the word itself must have been like being kissed in her soul. A gift of love to match the gift of healing. That's what I call you. You do not be afraid of me. You go in your healing. You go in your blessing. You go in your faith. Ah, 
May, and may the Lord say this to, to all of us. You are my son whom I love. You are my daughter whom I love. And may you be healed, spirit, soul, and body. May we live that way with that openness. And you know what? This is the good news. And the good news that we want to share with other people, imperfect people sharing about a perfect love and a Savior who gives everything and who calls us his sons and, our, and his daughters if we are willing to open up our heart to him and take a risk of faith. How great is that? That's great. And I love Jesus. <laughs> now, the song we're closing with could have been called Her Song. It's called For the First Time. In my mind, it's like a picture of her, her healing moment. But you know what else I'm thinking? I'm thinking it could be a picture of something that a lot of us are working through, too. Maybe some of us were also nearing this point in our life where for the first time we're really thinking about opening up our heart to the healing touch of Jesus. Others of us are going to be part of bringing somebody, and that's going to happen to them in these next coming weeks. Someone's heart is going to be affected because someone has some courage to make an invitation. I believe that with all of my, my, my heart. But some of us, it's like there might be these moments in our lives where God is opening something up for us. And for the first time, we're really experiencing his grace. Or maybe in this situation that we're in, we're finding a point of breakthrough in it. As we close the service out, I want us to engage this moment as if there are things in our own lives that God's trying to open up and bring life into, or people we love and care about, okay? So let's pray. We'll have our time of giving. We'll close out with the final song. But Lord, I want to thank you for what we've been able to share together. I love your words. Your words are life. Their life to us. And I love the way that she treated people. You model things for us. And I pray that you would remind us that we are your sons and we are your daughters. And um, we, we just need to let that affect us. Let that word settle in. Let's find our identity there. Not on the basis of what the shifting sands of culture say or even our own scripting, but what you say we are. My beloved daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in my peace. So I just pray, Lord, for the goodness of the Lord to fill this house. I'm looking forward to the weeks ahead. Be with us. Be near to us. Let your grace cover this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.